We continue today our Lenten sermon series, Walking with Jesus Through the Gospel of Luke on his journey to Jerusalem, on his journey to the events that we will soon turn to of Holy Week. We began this journey on the first Sunday of Lent, visiting the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, the very first event of his adult ministry. Next week, we will turn to the story of Palm Sunday, where Jesus reaches his destination. He reaches those gates of Jerusalem. And so today, one week earlier, we stop at the story and the place that Jesus stopped at on his final leg to Jerusalem. And so, friends, we hear now these verses from the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel, beginning with the first verse. Let us continue, continue listening now for a word from God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And so Zacchaeus ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus since he was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now all the people saw this and they began to mutter, Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send down your spirit now that it might lift us up to a new place. That we too might look out on the landscape of this word and find a vista full of fresh meaning for the living of these days. Indeed, O God, we pray that your spirit might be a bridge from this very old story to our lives and to this time. O God, may your spirit move so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here in your sight might be pleasing. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Three philosophers set up a booth on the corner of 57th and 8th in New York City last year. If you're familiar, it's just south of Central Park, they took their seats one by the other under a sign that read, Ask a Philosopher. 
Now, the man seated in the middle was the one who had dreamed this up and organized it, and he confessed later that he honestly didn't think anyone would even stop that day. But he figured even if no one does, it's still an hour spent with colleagues in the field. But not long after they took their seats, an older woman approached them there under their sign, and she took off the scarf she was wearing, and she revealed a scar on her neck. And she said, not long ago, I survived a very life-challenging, a very risky surgery. And my question for you, she said, is what now should I do with the rest of my life? And sure enough, after she approached, a crowd began to form. A group of college-age girls approached. Two of them were quizzing the philosopher on the end about whether or not colors were a primary or secondary property. But one of them, a college sophomore, she walked up to that man in the middle and she said to him, you know, I've been told all of my life that That these years in college, these years in my early 20s, they should be the happiest years of my life. But every day I seem to wake up wondering why I'm not more happy. My question, she said, is why can't I be happier? I mean, is this really all there is? Is this as good as it gets? And not long after that group, uh, a young girl, six years old, holding her mother's hand, cautiously approached the booth. She looked up at her mom as if her encouragement, and her mom let her hand go and sort of encouraged her forward. And that man in the middle, he, he asked that little girl as she approached, he said, Hello, do you have a philosophical question? And that little girl, she looked at him, and she said to him, yes, I do. How do I know that I am real? What do I do with the rest of my life? Is this really as good as it gets? How do I know that I'm real? These are some of life's deeper questions, aren't they? And these are the very questions, I think, that, that this character at the center of our story today, a man named Zacchaeus, seems to be pondering. The story, it only gives us a few clues at the outset as to who this man is. He is apparently short, although in my reading this week, I really enjoyed some of the observers who pointed out it's really not too clear whether Zacchaeus or Jesus is the short one in this story. If you go read it, it isn't as clear as maybe we think it is. Maybe he can't see Jesus over the crowd because Jesus is so short. But with that aside, there are other details that the story gives us about Zacchaeus' clues. It says that he's a wealthy man, Because he's a tax collector. And not just any tax collector. Zacchaeus, it says, is the chief tax collector. That says a lot in that time. 
It says that here is a man, a Jewish man, living in a Jewish world who has made his living by working for Rome. A man who has gained his wealth by, in large part, stealing from others. A person who has gained material things at the expense of the community around him. His neighbors, his childhood friends, even his own family. For as long as he can remember, Zacchaeus' world has long centered on one person and one person only, and that is himself. And to say that he is a hated figure is likely an understatement. It's amazing, I think, even then, as is now, when there are those people in our lives and in the world who, who are the the people who have hate directed at them. No matter how thick their skin is, it begins to take a toll on them over time. The greed, the alienation, the insults, the hate, they begin to inflict invisible wounds on even the thickest skin people. They begin to cause questions to bubble up to the surface, questions like, Is this really all there is? What do I do with the rest of my life? I mean, is there any way I can be happier than I am? Is there any more authentic way to live? Those are the questions I think Zacchaeus is pondering here. And when you have questions like these, you, you can't just sit around and wait for the answers to land in your lap. You have to go searching. You have to step up to the booth rather than walking by, in other words. And so that's what Zacchaeus does. Except he doesn't walk up to a booth. Zacchaeus climbs a tree. One of the commentators I read this week, he had this great line. He said, at ground level, Zacchaeus can't see what's possible. And so he climbs to where he can. Zacchaeus seeks out new heights for new perspective. And with each pull upwards, he can feel the weight of his past pulling him back down. And yet it is those questions that seem to propel him Upwards. Is this all there is? Is there something yet that I just can't see at ground level? Is there something that will spark life, real life? And even as he climbs, I have to wonder if Zacchaeus truly believed that he would find what he ended up finding at the top of that tree. I have this friend in ministry, a pastor who has been at it for a long time. He's near retirement now. He's a much-loved preacher and pastor, highly respected, and longed after once he has left the churches that he has served in his career. But he is a person who, in describing his growing up, will be the first to tell you that he was the runt of the litter. He was one of three boys, the youngest. Their father was a pastor. And, and this person, my friend, he, he broke all the rules growing up. 
He was the last person, his family will tell you, who they expected to go to college even, much less into ministry. And by the time he got to college, his view of the church, it was, it was cynical because as the, the child of a pastor, he had unfortunately seen all the ugly sides of church life as well as all the good ones. But he made it to college. He got there. He took an astronomy class one semester And when the professor stood up one day and announced an extra credit assignment, his ears perked up. Academics still weren't quite his forte. And the extra credit the professor was going to give was for anyone in the class who would go into town that weekend and attend a performance of Bertolt Brecht's Life of Galileo. Easy enough, he thought. And so there he found himself, a few nights later, sitting in a darkened theater, sort of following along as the play went, until one scene began to unfold on the stage. It was the scene where Galileo is sitting at his desk. He's recording his observations as he observes the the stars and the night sky. And suddenly he has two unwelcome visitors, two church people, two members of the religious elite who come to threaten Galileo, to warn him that he will be punished, perhaps even killed if he does not stop teaching and talking and writing about how the earth is not the center of the universe. My friend describes sitting in the theater that night, watching this scene and how in that moment his entire world seemed to shift. Suddenly it was as if his seat there in the theater had been transported to the top of a mighty tree and he could see the world in a completely new way. That's the problem, he thought. That's the problem. The problem with our world is that we all think we are at the center of it. The problem this scene taught him is that when we think we are the center of the world, we become so threatened by anyone and anything that tries to teach us otherwise. That he realized in that theater that night. That is the worldview that puts Jesus in a few short weeks up on a cross. People who are threatened by a teacher and a God who does not place them at the center of the universe. Jesus finds himself on that cross because Jesus is the one who teaches the world the exact opposite of what those church people wanted in that scene. Jesus is this This person, this God who who goes about his journey to Jerusalem by going towards the unclean and the outcast. Jesus goes towards the sinners and the tax collectors in our story today. Jesus goes towards people like Galileo, the dreamers and the stargazers. Jesus, my friend, realized that night, goes towards the ragamuffins and the runts. And it was that realization that shifted his world. 
It was this realization that all the people who did not fit into others' carefully constructed image of God were the very ones Jesus goes towards. It was as if, he says, God reached down into that dark theater that night and lifted off the top of his head and touched his brain and brought him to life. Because suddenly he realized that this is a God and a gospel I can follow. A God and a gospel who leads me towards the edges. Who leads me towards all those people the world sets aside. He went home that night and he sat in the dingy basement of his fraternity house and at 3 a.m. surrounded by the smell of stale beer he called home and his mother she she was woken from her sleep and she answered the phone and hearing his voice on the other end she assumed the worst and immediately passed it to his father there next to her and when his father got on the phone he said are you in jail And my friend, he said, no, Dad. No, I'm not in jail. In fact, Dad, for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm free. I feel like I'm free. That's the freedom that Zacchaeus finds at the top of a sycamore fig tree. The world unfolds before him, a world in which he is not the center, and yet the very center of the world sees him. Come down, Zacchaeus, Jesus says to him. Come down, and I'm going to come and stay with you in your home. We don't know what happens in that visit. There's no description in our story today about the conversations Zacchaeus and Jesus have. But what we do know is that Zacchaeus emerges from that visit a changed man. This man who just a few short verses before has been introduced to us as a greedy, wealthy tax collector now emerges from his home announcing to all with ears to hear saying now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if any of you if any of you feel that I have cheated you I will pay back four times the amount here is a man who emerges changed here is a person fully committed to following God And the gospel Jesus proclaims. Here is a man who is ready to spend the rest of his days placing others at the center of his world rather than himself at the center of theirs. For the first time, I am free. How do I know I'm real? That little girl asked that day. And that philosopher seated there in the middle, he said to her, close your eyes. Now open them. Did you disappear, he asked her. No, she said. Then you are real. Friends, open your eyes. You are real. God sees you. 
Is there anything blocking your view of that truth? Because if there is, then maybe it is time to climb. To climb high enough to that place where we can see what is possible when we replace self-importance with self-giving. Maybe it's time for us to pull ourselves up to that top branch where the vista of a world full of people intent on loving others more than themselves stretches out as far as the eye can see. Maybe it's time to climb to those thin places where the hand of God can reach down and touch us and bring us back to life. And maybe, just maybe, if we climb to that place, we too will find the words, will find the breath, to say perhaps for the very first time in our lives, I am free. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, may it be so. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.